The Bible reading this morning shall be taken from the book of Amos, chapter 5, verses 15 to 25, and chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Chapter 15. Hate evil and love what is good. Turn your court into true halls of justice. Perhaps even yet the Lord of God, the Lord God of heaven's armies, we have mercy on the remnant of his people. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord of God of heaven's army says. There will be crying in all the public squares and mourning in every street. Call for the farmers to weep with you and summon professional mourners to wail. There will be wailing in every vineyard, for I will destroy them all, says the Lord. What sorrow await you who say, if only the day of the Lord were here? You have no idea what you are wishing for. That day will bring darkness, not light. In that day, you will be like a man who runs from a lion, only to meet a bear. Escaping from the bear, he leans his hand against a wall in his house and is beaten by a snake. Yes, the day of the Lord will be dark and hopeless without a ray of joy or hope. I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your bond offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of herbs. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. Was it to me you were bringing sacrifice and offering during the 40 years in the wilderness, Israel? No. You serve your pagan gods, Sakuf, your king god, and Kawan, your star god, the image you made for yourselves. So I will send you into exile to a land east of Damascus says the Lord, whose name is the God of heaven's army. Chapter 6. What sorrow awaits you who launch in luxury in Jerusalem, and you who feel secure in Samaria? You are famous and popular in Israel, and people go to you for help. But go over to Kalme and see what happened there. Then go to the great city of Amath, and down to the Philistine city of Gath. You are no longer than they were. And look how, look at how they were destroyed. You push away every thought of coming disaster, but your action only brings the day of judgment closer. How terrible for you who sprawls on ivory beds and lounge on your crouches, eating the meat of tender lambs from the flock and of choice cows fighting in the stall. You sing trivial songs to the sound of the harp and fancy yourself to be great musicians like David. You drink wine by the bowlful and perfumes yourself with fragrant lotions. You care nothing about the reign of your nation. Therefore, you'll be the first to be led away as captives. Suddenly, all your parties we had. I got best there the other one.
Good morning, everybody. It's uh, nice to be back. If you weren't here last week, my name's Phil, and uh, it's a real joy to be able to share with you again this morning. Welcome home, Hoffmans. Uh, I said last week, but I'll say it again. These guys are such a blessing to our family and to this community, and, uh, and I know you guys are living proof of that as well, and just the honour of being able to stand here and share is, uh, is huge, so thanks, guys, and yeah, look forward to catching up and hearing about all your adventures. Last week, Jonathan asked me to preach on repentance, so I appreciate that. I publicly thanked you last week. This week, I'm preaching on how God hates our festivals and rituals, and so again, thank you, Jonathan. Uh, we talked last week about, um, yeah, just about what the shape of repentance looked like, and, and this week we're moving into, uh, I guess, a I look at judgment, but judgment that, that centres around this idea of justice and righteousness. And so I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to, we're going to explore what, what Amos says here and what that means for, for you, and I, you and I all these thousands of years later. So let me pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we, uh, we come before you this morning just with a deep desire to know you more. Lord, as we open your words and uh, as we open your word, sometimes we read things which in our context seem so far away and so unfamiliar, yet God, we know that every single word of scripture is, is applicable and, and, and applies to our lives and we can catch and understand your heart in it, God. So this morning as we, as we yeah, look at some of these complex ideas, I pray that Holy Spirit, you would reveal to us uh, your heart. Uh, and not just stir us in this moment, but stir us to actually live out each day differently, God. So I just pray for a revelation of, of your presence and grace in this moment, God. And uh, I thank you for, for this beautiful community and for what it means to, to be your people here in the Hawkesbury, God. So we just commit this time to you now. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. In the kind of center of what we just heard uh, read is a very, some very familiar words and simply I want to see a mighty flood of justice an endless river of righteous living so we've sort of got this central idea that all these other ideas sort of rotate around the first uh, the first few verses uh, really point to this idea of, of pride so they're saying, you know, like, you fear, you don't even fear the day of the coming Lord. You think you're sweet. You think you're fine. And there's this sense of, of pridefulness in the people of God, yet we've discovered very quickly that God is, in fact, rejecting even their worship. And if God's rejecting their worship and their heart towards him, then there must be a significant uh, issue with their sense of security in the coming day of the Lord. He moves into the, the next sort of idea uh, in verses 21 to 23 where it talks about hypocrisy. And it talks about all the, all the noise they make in their religious festivals, all the, all the excitement of the, 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 the harp and the, the joy of festivity, yet how God, the words actually are that he hates it. He says that he won't accept it. He won't even notice it. He says, get your noisy hymns out of here. And so some very strong language there about the hypocrisy of God's people. They're doing all the rituals of the people of God, but their hearts are in fact far from him. 
Then we move to this idea of idol worship. And we looked at this a fair bit last week in the previous chapter. Uh, and, and the fact that for a lot of people in Israel, while they worshipped idol, it was, uh, sorry, while they worshipped Yahweh, it was Yahweh and something else. And so they sort of had this, this syncretic sort of worship going on. And then in, the, in chapter 6 there, what we've just heard in those seven verses of chapter 6, I've just called it ignorant affluence. There's this sense of, hey, we're, we're fine. We're kind of going along well and, you know, sort of isolating ourselves from the, the trouble out there in the world. We know that at the end of the day, we are some of the richest people on the planet. Even if we're struggling to pay bills with the rising cost of this and that, what we have, the safety, security, the availability of food and water and resources, we're some of the richest people on the planet. And what happens is we isolate ourselves in that and we just convince ourselves that, that we're okay that we'll be doing fine. In, in uh, this passage, we read the words uh, where it talks about how you lean on the, um, say, uh, you lean on the walls of your house, you get bitten by a snake, and, and this idea that we sort of lean into the things that we've built, that we've created and crafted and come up with and designed, and we put so much hope and faith into them, that ultimately even those things, when we lean into them, when everything else seems to be crumbling, they too will be a source of pain and even death. So we've got those four ideas which all point to this idea ultimately of judgment or result in the judgment of God. But just wedged in the middle there is this beautiful image where it's almost like this idea of justice and righteousness is like this soothing, healing balm. I don't know about you, but when I read these words and, and, and when, I, when I heard our friend reading them, it's kind of, it's, it's really full on and it's, it's hard to read. And then you hear that phrase, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. And it's like this exhale. It's like, oh, it's beautiful. And we can begin to engage, not just with the problem, but with the, the solution that God invites us to be a part of, not just back then, but also on this side of the cross. We get to be a part of that flood of justice, that river of righteous living. If you've watched the news at all this morning, we've woken up to uh, horrendous news that in Korea, 140-plus people have lost their life in a stampede of sorts. Um, and I think that number is climbing. We have 100 people seriously injured. And when we hear things like that, we're reminded almost daily, if you kind of engage with the news daily, just of the, the world that we live in and the, the pain and the tor- turmoil of so, many, uh, of so many people. We know in our own lives that we have faced situations and circumstances that on one hand we understand God's heart breaks with us, but we also don't understand why we have to experience it. And we can sort of theologically explain that away. But like we talked about last week, sometimes we just got to sit in the lament and and cry out to God to ask the hard questions, to, 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 to just simply sit in that sadness and that grief and that brokenness. In our culture, 
the idea of justice or, or more, more particular social justice has become extremely prominent. And we need to ask ourselves, with this concept of justice, who establishes the standard of justice? Is it the world and the ever-changing, shifting ideals and, and values and, and, and all of those sorts of things? Or is it, in fact, Yahweh? Because when we consider this idea of social justice, we know that that can shift and, and move with each passing day. But the justice, the kingdom justice that God calls us to is, is, is the same yesterday, today and forever. It's something that he invites us into that is an overflow of who we are in him. And that's the invitation we have. There's been a, a, a term coined, and it's an official term now, and it's hashtag activism. And it's been, they, they, they reckon that the first sort of instance of it was in 2012 uh, with the hashtag, uh, hashtag Coney 2012. And if you were maybe, uh, I was a youth pastor at that time, and it was something that a lot of the young people were sort of engaging with. Uh, and that was sort of the beginning, and that ended up being a whole, a whole mess. Uh, in and of itself, but that was sort of the beginning of this idea of hashtag uh, activism. Since then, as you would know, particularly the last few years, we've had just an avalanche of these. And some of them have great ideas at their core, some of them are, 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 are don't. And, and me listing these doesn't, isn't any endorsement or unendorsement of any of these, but these are all in the last 10 years have, have gone viral, these hashtags. So hashtag fake news, hashtag me too, hashtag black lives matter, hashtag blue lives matter, hashtag all lives matter, hashtag speak your truth, hashtag shout your abortion, hashtag defund the police, hashtag free Britney, hashtag flatten the curve, hashtag end Father's Day, hashtag pray for Paris, hashtag pray for Afghanistan, hashtag pray for the Ukraine, hashtag pray for Melbourne, and probably this morning there's one out there that says hashtag pray for South Korea. Celebrities get in trouble if their Instagram profile doesn't have the right pronouns and they haven't sort of said exactly what their pronouns are. They're, 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 they're borderline cancelled if they don't respond to these situations in the right amount of time. That's the world in which we live. If we don't post about the right issue at the right time in the right way, then we have an issue. I remember people during the, um, the height of sort of the Black Lives Matter conversation, uh, there, was a, there was a day, I think, where people were putting just a black image up on their Instagram. And some people wrote Black Lives Matter under it. But you weren't allowed to do that. And so they got heaps of hate because it was like, no, you're not meant to say anything. You're just meant to put that, the black square. And there's this whole thing about that, like the right way, the wrong way, the right hashtag, the wrong hashtag. And that is often what this whole conversation has come about. We start GoFundMe for causes that matter, GoFundMe's or, or, or the like, for causes that matter to our heart. But they say that they have an average lifespan of less than three days. So they reckon that 85% of what you're going to raise is going to happen in the first three days. And then people move on. What is it that we, how is it that we engage? Now, some of those things I've read out uh, are, are, are good conversations to be had. 
Some of them are, are incredibly unhealthy. But how do we as the people of God engage in these conversations? I remember a few years ago reading a book and it was about a, um, someone who'd been incarcerated for many years and he'd, he'd come out of prison and he said this in his book, he said, all it takes to harden a man's heart is a system of justice. That's pretty sad, isn't it? That that sort of, you know, he'd been in the justice system, I think for 20 plus years. And all it takes to harden a man's heart is a system of justice. Now what, I can almost guarantee, I don't know this guy, I read his book, and I kind of know some of his ideas, but what I can guarantee is that his issue wasn't with the idea of justice, his issue was with the system. That's where this was breaking down. See, most people don't have a problem with justice, they have a problem with the system. Most people don't have a problem with the idea or the thoughts or the the concept of thoughts and prayers. They have a problem with the system that is just words, empty words with no action. That's what they have a problem with. And people's hearts get hard. And you you say that now to to people online or in the world, oh, my thoughts are... It's, it's, It's no longer something that is socially acceptable to say. And people's hearts have grown hard to the concept of thoughts and prayers, particularly prayers, because they've just been empty words with no action. All it takes to harden a man's heart is a system of justice. You know, Jesus overthrew the systems of his time. Amos spoke into and shouted down the systems of his time. Jesus didn't operate within the system. Instead, he implemented the kingdom of God and began to shape and mold everything around that. It was an overflow of who he was. And in doing that, he tore down the systems. When you, if you remember in John chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery, uh, the, um, the justice system of the time, the hashtag of that moment was to stone her for engaging in, in this adulterous relationship. The justice of the time did not hold the man to any account. The justice of the time merely wanted by the form of throwing rocks to carve her sins into her skin to the point of death. That was the justice in that moment. And what does Jesus come? He comes in, says he who's without sin can cast the first stone. He redefined this idea of justice. And that's the invitation we have, this redefinition of what it means to be a manifestation of justice and righteousness in our world, our world that is always changing, that is beyond fickle. The other, Jesus many, many times kind of pushed back against the system, but one of the other, one of my most, my favourite images of Jesus, and it's one that many people struggle with, but it's when he's in the temple overthrowing the tables. Again, you had poor people travelling for days and days to come and worship at the temple, and then they were getting absolutely ripped off in the temple at the exchange rate when they were buying their sacrifices so they could worship in the temple. So the poor, this, this system was actually taking advantage of people who had a heart to come and worship God. And so Jesus gets, gets angry, gets righteously angry. He goes in and he overturns the tables. I think one of the challenges we've got to consider 
in the church today is what are the tables Jesus would be overthrowing if you walked into our churches? And by tables, I mean concepts and ideas, idols that we've built. I think COVID showed us a whole lot of that, which we talked a bit about last week. But Jesus would come in and, and overthrow some tables, I think, in our church today, across the world. He redefined how people engaged with those who were less than. He redefined how people engaged with those who had committed sins, maybe even committed crimes. Jesus' heart for justice, which we actually mentioned last week, and again, it's one of my favorite images of him, he's on the cross, forgive them, Father, if they don't know what they're doing, as they are murdering him. Like his whole concept of love and grace and mercy and justice and righteousness was just totally opposite to that which we see, which we saw in the world and which we often see in the world today. When he hung on the cross, he looked over and he said to a fellow, um, a fellow man getting crucified, today you'll be with me in paradise. That man could offer him nothing. There was nothing that guy could contribute to his life or his ministry. But yet that recognition, I deserve to be here, you don't. And Jesus looked at him and said, today you'll be me in paradise. That's justice. That's what it looks like to have this, this, this flood of justice, this river of righteous, uh, of righteous, righteous living. You know, I could almost hear Amos. I hate all your show and pretense. I hate the hypocrisy of all your social media posts, promising thoughts and prayers. But it may also be not so much about a hashtag, but for you, maybe it's about writing a check, or well, you don't write checks anymore. Or maybe if you don't know what a hashtag is, you still write checks, I don't know. <laughs> but maybe it's just sending money off overseas. Like, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm not saying a hashtag's bad. But is it a kind of a way we sort of further isolate ourselves from really having to deal with the injustices of our world? Where in a comfortable amount inside what we own and what we put out in our budget, we kind of send some money and we feel good about that? Is that the, the flood of justice that Amos is inviting us into? Or is that more, more in line with the, the sort of... Um, the, what I call the, affluent, uh, the ignorant affluence. Well, we have money. We can, we can kind of throw some money at that within our budget. Now, don't hear me wrong. I don't want to go to all that mission dropped off. Like, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but I'm saying we've got to look at it. If that's the, the entirety of how we engage in the brokenness of our world, then perhaps we're missing something. So who defines the standard of justice that Amos is talking about here? Well, we know that it's Yahweh. Gary Smith, a theologian, says that justice is an outworking of God's character and holiness. An outworking of God's character and holiness. I like that. In how we respond is a reflection of who God is. And as the people of God, that, that needs to be a priority for us. One of the things that justice has become about, I think in our world, the words justice and tolerance have sort of become interchangeable a little bit. And this is probably controversial, but I don't, they're not the same thing. 
In fact, if, if we are to live out this flood of justice, then there's many, many, many times we're not actually going to be tolerant of the way in which our world is engaging with each other. When we see the way that Amos has written these words, mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. So the river of righteous living, the river is the constant. Floods, are, we're all too familiar with them these days in, in our area. Um, the, 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 the river is the constant. The flood is the overflow. So justice is the overflow of righteous living. So our justice cannot come out of a place of compromise. Our justice cannot come out of a place of, of, as we talked a bit about last week, of softening the gospel. Now, it doesn't mean that we, we treat people badly. It doesn't mean that we don't uh, love people, walk with people, and, and so into their life and outrageously love people who walk differently to us. But it doesn't mean we affirm every idea that the world says needs to be tolerated. Justice and tolerance are not the same thing. In these chapters that we've looked at, these verses, we can see how closely linked the idea of justice and righteousness and judgment are. Like this isn't something to mess around with. This isn't something just to, to, to compromise for the sake of, of popularity or, or even in some situations, even recently in the media, of keeping your job. Tolerance and social justice or tolerance and justice are not the same thing. Pastor Andrew Hill says that justice is bringing things in line with God's kingdom rule. We know in Jesus, Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, I think this is, this is a revelation of justice. See in Luke 10, verse 25, we, 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 so this is sort of the, the lead up to the Good Samaritan story. It says, one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? So he's grabbed something really familiar for this guy. He says, what does the law of Moses say? The man answers, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And he goes into the, the, the account of the Good Samaritan, which we're going we're gonna to quickly look at towards the end. That this would have been a core understanding of, of justice for the Israelites. Like this wasn't some new concept that Jesus was introducing. This was the law of Moses. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. See what I love about that, that understanding of, of justice and of righteousness is that our love for God becomes a filter through which we engage with people. And that is in, imperative in this conversation, that our love for God is the filter through which we engage with our world. And this guy who's asking this question, he fell into the tra trap that I think many of us, probably all of us at times have fallen into. 
He chose justification over justice. He says, hey, I want to, in trying to justify himself, in trying to let himself off the hook in who his neighbour was, he says, well, who, who's my neighbour? Let's, let's, let's try and narrow this down as much as possible so it take as, as less work or as less sacrifice as possible. Less inconvenience. What's the bare minimum I need to do to sort of keep God happy? And, and, and I think churches have sort of become good, Christians have become good at the bare minimum of justice. Of justice that's comfortable and convenient. And maybe God's calling us to reconsider who our neighbour is and what our responsibility is in that. Because our sinful nature begs us to do the bare minimum. A couple of beautiful stories of justice that came to mind for me as I was preparing. One was about a, a church in, um, in Philadelphia in 1995, St. Edward's Cathedral. Uh, it, was, had 40, it had been deserted for years. It had 40 homeless families living in it and they'd formed this beautiful community over years. 1995 rolled around and the, uh, the diocese uh, gave them 48 hours to leave before they were, I think they were going to, I can't remember what they were going to do to the property, but they were going to um, sell it off or do something. And uh, if they didn't leave within 48 hours, these families, mostly women and children, would be arrested. And so a group of college students went, they heard about it, and they went and they stood with them. And they said, hey, if you're going to arrest them, you're going to arrest us too. And so before they knew it, they had, rather than just 40 families, they had another 100 college students in that, in that church. And they actually moved in. And they lived with these people as this whole process unfolded. Many, uh, many other people from the community joined them, uh, but most of the churches in the area actually distanced themselves from them, from this sort of civil disobedience. But Christmas rolled around as they were having this, this conversation, sort of um, this, this standstill, and uh, the mafia rolled up with presents for all the kids while all the churches continued to distance themselves from the situation. So they bought the kids bikes, they, they engaged in this. And now, 25 years later, that church is a ministry to the homeless people. And it's grown and it's become this, this amazing institution in the city of Philadelphia in, in, in their conversation um, against poverty and, and, and family breakdown and, and all sorts of amazing things. But it started with that decision to engage. I love that image. Another picture that came to, head, to my head was um, a book I read a while ago. And they, I remember it depicted uh, a slum in Bombay. And it talked about how they would have these fires. Um, that once, once sort of the wet season was over, um, the, the basically the, the whole slums and millions of people would just become uh, just, just kindling for fire. Um, and when these fires would start, would, would hit, and it would just be one of the combustion heaters they have would, would, would blow up or whatever, and then would start a fire in one house. What people would do who were in the path of the fire, they would tear down their own homes in order to stop it getting to somebody else's. And they would, they would tear it all down, they'd get rid of all their belongings and just leave it because that, 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 that structure was kindling was fuel for the fire, and so they would tear down their own homes in order to protect somebody else's. Isn't that a beautiful image of, of community and of justice? 
One of my favourite images in scripture is King David with his nephew, can never say his name, Mephibosheth. Is that right? Mephibosheth. It's pretty good. Uh, you know, the, the cultural practice, the cultural expectation of the time was that when a, sort of a, when a new king sort of took over from a different family line, that he would actually kill all of the family of the person who would have been king so that there was no uprisings or anything like that. So when, um, when, when he becomes king and, he's, you know, and Jonathan dies, uh, his, Jonathan's son is taken by the, by the nanny to hide from David. They trip and fall. He becomes paralysed and lame and spends many years in hiding until David says, I want to I bless the family of Jonathan. Who is left that I can bless? And, um, and he comes and, um, and he be, invites Mephibosheth not just to be in and around their community, but he invites him to the table. And he sits and he becomes a part of the family. Again, an outrageous picture of justice and of righteousness that we can learn so much from. One of the conversations we were having at Hawkesbury Valley over the last couple of years was about not just inviting people to appeal to sanctuary, but to a seat at the table. And, uh, you know, our... Our mission shouldn't be reduced to come to church. It should be, hey, come sit at my table. I want to hear your story. I want to walk with you from that place. But often what happens is uh, we find ourselves stepping around people, stepping over people in order to engage with what we perceive as holy. In order to engage with our, with our festivals, our solemn assemblies, whatever that is for us, our burnt offerings, our sacrifices, to make our hymns of praise, we step over and around those who are crying out. One of the one really powerful images of that in Scripture is in Acts chapter 3. And it tells us that Peter and John were going to the temple for the 3 o'clock prayer service. So these guys were on their way to church. A regular rhythm of of engaging in the, 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 the ceremonies of their faith. It says, as they approached the temple, a man who was lame from birth was being carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, so he could beg from the people going into the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. I was intrigued by that because there's this sense that we don't know for how long. We know this guy, as we learn later, probably in his 40s. But we don't know how long he was being put there but we know that for a while there was people who were probably just stepping over in and around him on their way to the temple. Even Peter and John, there's no indication that they even noticed it. He actually called out to them. He called out to them. And then it says, Peter and John looked at him intently and Peter said, look at us. The lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money. But Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I have in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Get up and walk. Then Peter took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. He jumped up, stood on his feet and began to walk. Then walking, leaping and praising God, he went into the temple with them. What was the, the, the defining factor was he cried out, but then Peter and John looked at him intently. And from there, there was a manifestation of the power of God at work. See, we often, even when we look at people, we don't see them. 
We don't see the stories that have led them to the place they're in. We don't see the things. All we see is, is the symptoms. All we see is the bravado they've put up. All we see is the survival mechanisms. And God invites us in this conversation around justice and righteousness to look at someone intently, to look beyond what they project and to begin to see them as someone created in the shape of God's heart. How many times have we stepped over people on our way to church? I remember saying it to Hawkesbury Valley a few times, sometimes you've just got to miss church because you got caught up loving somebody. Maybe sometimes you're going to be late because you got caught up living out this image of being a flood of justice in our world. I learned this a hard way a few years ago, 2018, and I actually have his uh, funeral brochure in my Bible. My neighbour at the time, an elderly, elderly man in his mid to late 80s, we'd had lots of conversations over the years. He was a, a Polish gentleman who considered himself an atheist, but over the years we would stand and have conversations in our garages and, you know, we'd, we'd talk about all sorts of things. And uh, I remember he used to say to me, you'll never convert me, Phil, but I like you. And I'm like, we're just chatting, man. And, you know, but we would go deep. He had sort of an orthodox upbringing and he, he knew, you know, portions of the Bible. And so we'd have these great conversations. Um, I noticed one day that he wasn't around, his car wasn't there, and um, I ended up contacting his daughter and she said, oh, he's in... He's in hospital, fairly routine. And uh, I said, no worries. Um, anyway, she goes, he was actually asking after you if you'd come visit him. I said, yep, okay, I can do that. I think that was a, a Saturday. I said, I'll come between the services tomorrow. So I'll come sort of around lunchtime. Anyway, church happened in the morning. Then people happened and there was conversations and there was a meeting I had to jump into. And, and I didn't get there. We had our night service. I thought the next day I'll go. And then Monday sort of happened and we had a, we had a property with a lot of asbestos. Well, there's none now. We sorted it. But at that time there was some asbestos in the property. And uh, we had this emergency meeting and then I had a staff meeting. And then um, Tuesday rolled around. I'm like, I'll go after lunch today. I finally got through some meetings. I rung his daughter at lunchtime on Tuesday and said, hey, I'm going to come see your dad. And she goes, he just passed away this morning. And it wrecked me. Absolutely wrecked me because um, I knew the conversation we were going to have. And in my holy duty as a pastor of a church and all these things, I totally missed the holiness of a moment, of an interaction. And I sat in that for a long time and people would try and give me the, you know, I know God would have sent someone in this. And I was like, no, he sent me. Like, he was sending me. And uh, I, don't walk, I don't walk in the place of condemnation with that, but, but I have to learn from that. And that's why I keep his funeral thing in my Bible, because I never want to miss the holy moment for the sake of a sacred assembly, even when I'm the one paid to show up. And that's hard. It's hard when you've got a heightened sense of responsibility and all those sorts of things. So many of you may have similar sort of stories and understandings, but... But when we truly see a person, I believe, is when we see, <clears throat> when we see a manifestation of justice. Maybe as Jesus shared the story of the Good Samaritan, he had these words of Amos echoing in his head. What is the way to life? You know, what is the way to eternal life? Because there is a heaven and a hell. There is, there is going to be judgment one day. All things are going to come and be reconciled to him. And, 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 and that, that's all very real. 
So what's the way to life? Well, Jesus tells this guy, well, this guy says it, doesn't, maybe doesn't believe it. You know, it's the way to life. It's not just a, what's a good idea. or It's like, what is the way to life? It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. Then he tries to justify it and Jesus tells a good Samaritan story. And we know that story. The Samaritan guy, the, um, the, the man gets beaten up and beat, left by the side of the road. We know that the priest comes by uh, and crosses over to avoid the situation altogether. He's in his fancy clothes. He's probably on the way to some important duty. It was probably inconvenient. He probably wasn't being malice, malicious about it. He was probably like, I've got to be somewhere. I've got a sacred assembly to attend. And I'm the guy. If I'm not there, it's probably going to struggle. So, you know, we kind of beat this guy up, but it's like, oh, he's probably just like, oh, man, I've got to be somewhere. And it was probably a fairly common sight. It's not like for us, if we saw that, we'd be like, but that was probably fairly common. Then you've got the temple assistant who, you know, he sort of weighed up the cost. He went and had a look. He said, oh, no. And then he's like, no, I'm, I'm, again, maybe I don't have time. Or maybe he's following the example of the priest. Maybe he's like, well, if he didn't engage, I'm not going to engage. I think it's the place where many Christians are at. We, we, we weigh it up, the cost of engaging in these situations, the cost of living out this justice. And we, we decide that the cost is too high. The price is too high. And we keep walking. And then we get the Samaritan. We all know he wasn't meant to be the one to stop. He was meant to be the one to walk the other way. They hated each other, all those sorts of things. But what do we see? He was willing to be inconvenienced. He didn't pass the bark and expect somebody else to come. He recognised that in that moment he was the one who could be that flood of justice. And he made a choice accordingly. That's the invitation for all of us. In the context that we live in, of hashtags, of pride, of hypocrisy, of idol worship, of our own ignorant affluence, are you willing to be the one who is inconvenienced? Are you willing to be the one who is a manifestation of the heart of God, a flood of justice, a river of righteousness. Hosea, another, another prophet in the sort of same vein as Amos, in Hosea 6 verse 6, I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. Again, it's the same idea. It's the same idea. In, uh, in 2018, for our church, we put together a vision statement, which sort of, I just sort of got laid over my heart over a few months. And it was for passion for God and people, pursuit of God and people, and power of God through people. Passion, pursuit, power. That that's who we wanted to be. And just this week, as I was preparing this message, that phrase actually came into my mind. And I looked at it and I thought, that's a definition of justice. Like passion for God and people, pursuit of God and people, and power of God through people. Like God has to come first every time. God is the, the foundation, he's the sustainer, he's the filter through which we do all of this. But then in that we've got to see people. We can't isolate ourselves in our piety, disconnect ourselves from the world, and just wait for the coming day of the Lord as the Israelites were doing sit back and, you know, it talks about them eating lamb, the choice lamb. And, you know, they didn't get to eat much meat back then. But these guys, they were, they were, they were, they were affluent enough to be eating meat and relaxing. And, 
And it's like, hey, where's your, yeah, maybe you're making a lot of noise about your passion for God, but not seeing that manifested. That's just noise. And God says, I hate it. I really don't like it. I reject it. I don't want anything to do with it. So I really just thought this, this week, I thought, man, that's a, that's, a, that's a cool definition for justice. Passion for God and people. Pursuit of God in people. The, the Samaritan went over to the man. He had to cross over. He had to engage. And then the power of God through people. Micah 6, 8 says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What is good. And what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? There's three things that Micah outlines there for us. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with God. What does that mean for you? What does it mean for you to act justly? Who is it that God is calling you to go over to, to engage with? How many of your neighbours do you know? Do you even, maybe even know their first name. And that might be the first step, is to sort of have a look at your street and go, okay, neighbours two either side and three across the road. I'm going I'm to choose to just walk across and say hello, learn their name. I had a 30-second conversations with one of my neighbours the other day, in which time he told me that uh, his daughter was in, in hospital with, with anorexia. It was really bad. And it was 30 seconds while he was leaning against, while he was driving past and he stopped to talk to me. And as I, in that 30 seconds, I was saying, mate, I'm going to be praying for you. And the car came and he had to keep moving. But like those opportunities, when we know people, when we at least choose to learn someone's name and maybe a bit of their story, before long, we become the people who they'll, they'll just say, when you say, how are you going? They're like, oh, it's really, really bad right now. So maybe that's what it looks like. But what does it look like for you to act justly this week? Who is God calling you to go over to? It's messy. It's inconvenient. It's often misunderstood, but it is holy. What does it mean to love mercy? Grace and mercy often get confused. Grace is God's gift that we don't deserve, but mercy is him holding back the wrath that we do deserve. So how do we live a life of love and mercy? What debts do we need to forgive? What people do we need to forgive? Justice, act, acting justly is kind of the grace component. And then here we see the mercy component. Justice is what are we giving out and mercy is what are, we, what are we holding back? What are we allowing God to actually to do the business of and saying, you know what, well, I'm going to let that go. And then to walk humbly with our God. As we say, a righteous river. Let that righteousness be a foundation. Let the pursuit of God, walking humbly with him, be the foundation for our justice. Otherwise, we're going to, we're going to just swing from from. Um, popular idea or cause to, and we're never going to have any conviction or really bear much fruit and we're going to quickly compromise on what we, we know is truth walking humbly with our God my friends our public manifestation of worship needs to be far exceeded by our private one I say to our worship team if you're worshipping more on this platform then you are at home, then maybe you need to 
work through what that is. As a pastor, as a minister, if I read the Bible more up here or pray more up here than anywhere else, then that's a problem. Then I'm in this space of show and pretense and hypocrisy. So walking humbly with God each and every day, apart from a platform, apart from a place of influence, just walking humbly with God. And I think we'll see what Amos prays, what Yahweh says, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. Imagine if that was a sound that rolled out of this place. It'd be beautiful. It'd be holy. Let me pray. Almighty God, we just recognise today that, um, that we fall short, but we recognise that we stand in an incredible place of, of grace and mercy. And we thank you for that. And I pray right now, God, that as we continue in our worship, God, that you would bring to mind just the posture of our hearts, God. That our, our private worship would far outweigh our public, God. That you would bring to mind people and situations that you want us to engage with that you want us to act justly in, that you want us to love mercy in. And Lord, I pray that the sound that would roll out of Windsor District Baptist Church would be one of roaring rivers, God, of righteousness and justice. I thank you for this community and I just pray a blessing on it now. And I pray that you take us from here and that we would walk with a sense of being on your agenda. God, and seeing your heart and your kingdom come through your people, God, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.